Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue and on this week's episode, Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons speaks to Zoe Billingham, the new director of the think tank IPPR North, and how the government can really make the levelling up agenda benefit our region. So even if we were looking at the the question of local leadership from a purely political point of view. I do think now some in the current government are looking at the likes of Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham and saying, hey, actually, when the moment comes where actually there is a change of government and the current government is no longer in power, they want their own Andy Burnhams to be able to hold the next government to account or the the, the government after that. So I think both sides of the political spectrum are are seeing the huge value politically as well as the actual changes that local leadership, local mayors can make. And as a new campaign launches to give communities the power to transform their own areas, we hear from a local leader in Bolton, Inyat Amaj, who's dedicated 5,000 hours to turning his local abandoned church into a beautiful hub for community life. But it shouldn't be so hard. We shouldn't be uh, going against the grain. We shouldn't be um, pushing doors at every little hurdle. And that's why we're calling for a Community Power Act, which would fundamentally change uh, where power lies in this country. So local people can really shape um, the areas where they live in because they know their area. They, They have the finger on the pulse of their area. But first, as local authorities up and down the land submit their bids for a share of the next round of the levelling up fund, Bradford Council has published a compelling report which argues their region should be a test case for the project. The 16-page document highlights how the city is best placed to deliver and argues if cash is spent in Bradford, residents and the government will see a massive return. With me now to discuss all this and more is Bradford City Council leader Susan Hinchcliffe. Susan, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So to start, I just wondered if you could give us an overview of the pitch you're making. So we all know, and it was national news a few months ago, that Bradford is the number one levelling up area opportunity in the country. And uh, it was um, an opportunity index that was done across the country, and Bradford came out top of that. Uh, And we just feel it's our moment now to really put a pitch to uh, the government and to the country at large, say, look, this is what we can offer if you invest in Bradford, if you come alongside us and invest what we're investing uh, as well, then you can really make a huge difference here and actually contribute not just to Bradford, but to the north and indeed the country. I mean, there are some big numbers in that perspective, you know, just in terms of the benefit it will have on your local economy, life expectancy um, and all various kind of different metrics. Um, I just wondered if you could kind of walk us through some of the, some of the benefits that uh, investment would bring. Yeah, so we reckon that being um, really powering our economic recovery forward would lead to £30 billion GVA uplift over a 10-year period, 
um, the bit three thousand pounds per worker average increase in annual income per worker. You've got a one point six billion annual increase in life satisfaction. To that, will also impact on less crime, people feeling more positive, less mental health charges, for example. And then you've got um, one point six billion annual increase in life expectancy. And at the moment, we've got, on average, a woman in Bradford spends 22 years of her life in ill health. And that means then she can't uh, work. She perhaps might not be able to look after her family properly. Uh, and that requires a lot of public sector support to get her back on her feet. So if we actually prevented that from happening in the first place, just think about how uh, exceptionally successful our city and district would be. And I think that's the kind of goal that we're aiming for and what we think is eminently realisable in this, the youngest city in the UK. I think many people will be shocked to hear that, did you say, 22 years um, a, a woman in Bradford spends in ill health. I mean, is, is Bradford an, an outlier on this or is this mirrored across the north? Or You'll see in all the areas that need levelling up that this is a similar statistic, actually, uh, in that you have a lot of people spending a lot of their life in ill health. And that costs a lot of money, of course, for NHS. So what we do as a country, as a nation... We plan more and more money into the NHS and that acute end of supporting people in ill health rather than preventing them getting ill in the first place. If you want a healthy, successful economy, you need to invest in people's skills so that people can get good jobs and they will remain therefore healthier throughout their entire lives. Making sure that people are economically uh, prosperous is what we should all be trying to aim for doing. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to spend enough money on the acute end in the NHS and we have to get ahead of that curve and spend money on um, early help prevention and having people having more successful economic lives. And then they'll be able to keep themselves and their family in good health for longer. It's just common sense. You touch on the importance of jobs there, and that's obviously a big focus of the prospectus. And I think we've heard a lot in recent days about how job vacancies are a record high nationally. But I don't think that's perhaps true in Bradford, where according to the local government association, I think for every vacancy, there are around three people chasing that vacancy. What, why do you think that is in Bradford? And, and what would your plan do to bring more jobs to the city, you know, for those people who are chasing employment at the minute? So we have um, a, have a young population, 26% of our population under the age, age of 18. Um, we also have underemployed young people as well. A lot of our young people have got uh, um, degrees, but might not be using in a degree level um, employment. So their opportunities are more limited than um, other cities sometimes. And you've got some like PwC come into the city um, who've um, now employed 150 people and have been uh, outstanding. I've, I've just thought how wonderful it is. They've got all these young, diverse people with great skills and they're making the most of them. And they're really going from strength to strength in Bradford because they've got access to these skills. But actually, our transport links aren't as good as they should be. So um, for our young people to get to other cities in the north or, in fact, for businesses to get to Bradford is more challenging than other places. Uh, which is why us having um, a station, Northern Powerhouse Rail, was so important for us. However, what we do have is government have made a promise to electrify the line between Leeds and Bradford with an investment of £500 million. And we have to make the most of that investment and show them how that can be done. And it might not be how they think it can be done at the moment, but we're willing to work with them to see how we spend that money wisely and get the economic benefits of Bradford South uh, and also the southern gateway of the city um, really take advantage of those opportunities with that government investment alongside our own investment. So we think we can achieve quite a lot, but we do need government to believe in us just as we believe in ourselves and our future and our residents.
You touched on transport there, and, and obviously we can't really talk about levelling up Bradford without talking about the integrated rail plan. I just wondered how much of a dent that was to your city, uh, missing out on, on some of the programmes that were promised uh, last year. Obviously, I was very angry about it and continue to be angry about it, I'm afraid. Uh, as you would imagine, I'm very emotionally invested in the place I represent, having lived here and born here all my life, etc. Um, but as, you know, talking to other Northern leaders, I remember speaking to Richard Lees um, and he said to me, Susan, you know, what, you've got one no. We got three no's before we got our stuff sorted out in Manchester. You know, you cannot be just held back by short-term political decision-making. We're in this for the long term in Bradford. This is about a long-term change to our future. We know we've got all the right ingredients for success. We've got a young population. How many cities are out there saying, oh, we don't have enough young people? We've got loads of young people all willing to do the work that is required and with quite a lot of skills, actually, as well. But we need them to have more skills and we have more investment in those skills. And we're right in the heart of the north of England, um, right um, next to Leeds, which is doing very well. So we need to better connect it to Leeds and also better connect it to Manchester, which is only 30 miles away, uh, which has got the Manchester International Airport that we all drive to on the motorway all the time. But we all know that that M62 is a single point of failure. So there's more needs to be done on transport. We've got our own ideas for what can be done on that, working with the mayor, of course, to do better on buses. But that interconnectivity between cities is not there yet. And we'll use that £500 million that government has set aside to try and help us on that as well. So there's lots to play for. And as uh, the prospectus is really us setting out our plans for how we'd spend the money and how the benefits will be realised for the UK economy. You mentioned Manchester there. I don't know if you saw, but Andy Burnham uh, warned yesterday that the HS2 bill, I think, which was tabled as part of the Queen's speech the other week, if the, he said that if that passes through Parliament, it'll rule out a Bradford line and, and ultimately cross well for the North. I just wondered how you, I mean, I suppose doing things like you're doing t- today with this prospectus, but how do you and other Northern leaders go about changing this bill and, and kind of bang the drum for Northern transport? Well, it just shows how important that parliamentary time is, isn't it, in those committees, uh, changing those bills and making sure that they accommodate um, future plans. Because what we can't have, of course, I agree with Andy, is decisions being made which preclude options for the future. Um, This is about long-term change. And actually, you need to be able to plan for 10, 20, 30 years hence. Democracies that just plan for the next parliamentary term get nowhere. You know, we need to be bigger than that. And as politicians, we need to be bolder than that to make sure that we have these ambitions future and don't put in bills which preclude options which our future generations might want to realise. And we still have that ambition to get more uh, quickly over to Manchester, be on that mainline train line. And it would help Manchester as well. I say getting Manchester Airport more uh, clearly within our sights uh, would really benefit our economy. So Andy and myself have worked quite hard on that uh, and obviously back his calls to make sure we do our best to keep that option open for the future. And finally, it's been said many times over the last year or two that, you know, whether the levelling up fund or the towns fund, it's it's almost become a bit of a, a lottery or a beauty pageant for cash. I just wondered, obviously, you, you've launched this cracking prospectus today. But, you know, is there a bigger burden on local authorities like yours nowadays to secure central government funding? You know, do, do you have to jump through a lot many more hoops? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we wanted to be a levelling up area, which is a broader um, proposition that government, the government have already got Sheffield, Wolverhampton and Blackpool in there. We want to be in those 20 as well because it will give us broader powers and a longer term investment plan uh, than some of the beauty pageant stuff that you've been talking about about the levelling up fund for example 
I think it is very self-defeating to just always um, have a competition and uh, enable uh, richer places who have got more capacity to for, to go for those bids. Um, we need more people doing more bids and more feasibility studies to be able to get over the line in many of these things. All cities will have uh, an investment pipeline they want to fund. And actually, I think it should be beholden on government, not just for those 20, but for every city in the UK, to say, these are your long-term plans and this is how we're going to support you. You know, we, we all have those ambitions and we know what we need to do to deliver them. So just work with us to have a long-term investment plan for the place, which works across party, rather than help, you know, asking us to jump through hoops for a beauty competition, as you say. That's what we want, long-term relationship with government. I mean, so do you think at the moment, perhaps it's a little bit too short-termist still? I think the levelling up fund um, obviously was, wasn't it? Because obviously it was everybody in the country could bid for it. And by definition, if, if you want everybody in the country can bid for levelling up, and then how, how does that work? Because obviously we know that some parts of the country need more levelling up than others. Um, however, I think the levelling up area opportunity, I'm hoping, is a longer term, more strategic opportunity for us to work with government uh, to get the investment we need and some of, that, some of the powers we need to really accelerate our economic recovery. So, anyone who reads the Northern Agenda newsletter will be familiar with the work of IPPR North, the think tank dedicated to developing bold, progressive ideas to strengthen the north of England and regions like it. IPPR North was established 18 years ago in recognition of the need to give voice to the concerns and arguments for positive change in the north. And with policymakers in all parties now more than ever proclaiming their commitment to boosting the prospects of parts of the North which have been long neglected, its cause is now at the forefront of the political debate. The latest director of the think tank is Zoe Billingham, who previously led the Centre for Progressive Policy, advising national and local leaders on regional inequality, and has worked as a senior policy advisor at the Treasury. Zoe took over the top job just a few weeks ago, so what better time to check in on how it's all going. So Zoe, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Hi Rob, great to be here. I mentioned a little bit about your career to date. Can you just tell us a bit about how so, how does someone end up being a director of a think tank? And, it, and is, you know, the area that IPPR North specialises in, sort of regional inequality, is, is that something you've always had an interest in? Yeah, well, to be honest, Rob, um, my interest in social and economic justice started way back. Um, so at home, when I was growing up, my dad was involved in defending people in the criminal justice system. And it was there that I really saw the impact, the long term impact that injustices building up over time in someone's life um, can lead to such difficult life circumstances and outcomes for them. And I got really interested in, well, how is it that some people have such an unfair start in life? And that's really my motivation for being involved in the kind of broader social and economic injustice. I then decided that, you know, economics was the way that people challenge challenge the narratives, the political narratives and win arguments. So I wanted to bring together these two topics, went off to study politics and economics and for my sins, then turned this into a into a job in government, working as an economist in government. So really did what I said on the tin. Um, had a brilliant time working in the civil service, where, as you say, I worked in Treasury as well as working on regional inequality for what was then the Ministry of um, Housing and Communities and Local Government. And in Treasury, I 
was more working on international affairs. But what it really exposed me to was how decisions are made in Westminster and Whitehall and the influences that shape decision makers. And it was great being so close to the centre of power, but you also see some very kind of institutionalised behaviour and you think, surely we can do this differently. Surely we can diversify the people making decisions who have a broader range of life experiences. And this led me to go to seek out to work with local leaders, local leadership, closer to um, people, closer to um, the sharp end of problems that people were facing. So I've always been interested in social, economic injustice and regional inequality has been a common thread. And as someone who grew up in the Midlands and who now lives in Liverpool, um, I've also kind of experienced those regional injustices myself too. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Liverpool is a, a city where there's a, a very uh, strong sense of uh, you know the region being treated poorly by, by central government over decades and being neglected. So I imagine you get a real strong sense of it there. I'm interested in your your background at the at the Treasury, because obviously that is ultimately the government department that holds the purse strings and can dictate you know the level of resource dedicated to any particular policy, whether it's levelling up or net zero. And we hear a lot, don't we, about how all areas of government are committed to levelling up. And but I, I do, you know, sense some in some quarters there are questions over the extent to which the Chancellor and the Treasury in general is committed to this idea i mean from your experience in 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 the treasury like what what role would people in 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 that department be playing in these bigger long-term projects in 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 leveling up do you get the sense that they are fully fully on board with it or is it a bit more complicated than that well i think you're totally right that treasury still very much well as well as holding ultimately the purse strings also has a massive strategic role in terms of setting the agenda across government and that really does feed through to the rest of government from Treasury. And that was very much um, my experience. I think you're right from what we've seen on the levelling up agenda so far. I'm not fully convinced that the Treasury is part of this agenda and fully on board. It was great. You know, we've got these 12 levelling up missions. And I think that was Michael Gove's attempt to broaden the remit of levelling up and to institutionalise it across government. And we saw these 12 missions being put into legislation um, at the Queen's speech last week. But actually, when you look at the small print, government still has the power to change those missions, to remove the missions. And unless you have proper funding, of course, but be- behind them, then really they can be totally toothless. So it is critically important as to whether the Chancellor is up on this agenda. Um, perhaps his um, teams up in Darlington will properly bring him over to understand the impact of regional inequality and how it could improve what government can do to help people's lives across the country. But I'm yet to see evidence of it. Yeah, because that's an interesting uh, area of policy, isn't it? The moving Whitehall civil servants into different parts of the country. I mean, is and obviously, you know, you, you have a unique perspective on it, I suppose, as someone who was in central government and has made it their work to work more closely with local leaders. I mean, is, is there... Is there some merit to opening up a, a headquarters for the Treasury in Darlington and obviously the levelling up department have a, a big base in Wolverhampton now? I mean, do, will it actually achieve anything, do you think? Or is it just a bit of sort of gesture politics to the, to the red wall? I'd say it's a helpful gesture. Um, but the extent to which being based outside of London really changes the way in which policy is made 
and ref better reflects the concerns of the North and the Midlands and, and other regions outside of London um, is the critical bit. And that's the bit that moving people out of London to work in the regions doesn't guarantee. So I think we're yet to see um, how well integrated that these new civil servants in Darlington and increased capacity in Wolverhampton, as you say, and places like it has on the way policy is made and the influences on that policy. So in of itself, it's not going to change the dial. But if done well, it, you know, it would be a worthwhile exercise. Now, IPPR North that you, you lead produces work on all sorts of subjects. But I mean, are there, you're relatively new to the organisation, are, are there any particular areas that you feel it's important to focus on? And so what, what would you like to achieve in your time as, as director? As you say, IPPR North has been on the case for 18 years now. So I'm really proud to be part of an institution that sort of called it on the North long before the levelling up agenda. Um, I'm really proud to be part of that. And I think obviously the IPPR North and our kind of wider stakeholders in the North and Northern Powerhouse, NP11, People's Powerhouse have obviously achieved a lot already. And the levelling up agenda has kind of compounded and put more urgency on, on closing those regional divides. But where I see the sort of next step on the levelling up agenda and, and closing those gaps, I think health inequalities, for me, health inequalities kind of summarise a lot of what goes wrong, actually, in, in, in regional policy in this country. And if we could close the gaps in healthy life expectancy, I think that would be a major success. Um, in Liverpool, where I live, you know, 58 years is the average life ex um, healthy life expectancy for women, 10 years before you're due to retire. So you're, you're due to be, on average, in poor health for 10 years before you retire. Like, to me, that is shocking. And in other places in the country, you can expect to have up to 18 years more healthy life expectancy. And again, that is a divide which, for me, is fundamental and speaks to kind of what is the economy for, what is living for, what is the good life for. And healthy life expectancy, I think, brings a lot of that together. Um, I think another one has to be of of opportunity and that's the kind of high skill high wage jobs and I think that's the bit where we're we're on the way and there's a lot of progress but sometimes we need some bold movers we need uh, some bigger action to kind of stimulate that to happen faster and further um, another area is wealth inequality um, for partly for reasons I'm afraid to say or property prices but there's lots of other levers you know Generally speaking, the wealth that people collate is far uh, less in the north, which, of course, has huge implications, whether that's for your social care in the future, whether that's for the options your kids can make because you can support them financially, whether that's the risks you can take because you've got a, a cushion, a financial cushion behind you. So I think that has big um, implications. And then also the fourth thing, which is really core to our work at IPPR North, which, of course, is about local leadership. We know that the further you live away from Westminster, the less you trust in politicians. And I think the kind of burgeoning, you know, metro mayors in particular, but um, also the new county mayors potentially could be uh, a really good way to institutionalise, you know, decision making happening closer to the people as long as those leaders have access and influence to Whitehall too. So that's something I'm really focused on and really passionate about as well. As a final thought, I mean, we, when you're covering politics in the North, obviously there's a lot to be angry about, I guess, and to be frustrated about. But I feel like it's sometimes quite easy to ignore the 
positive and interesting things that are going on around our region. And there's lots of interesting policy work being done, lots of interesting ideas. I mean, obviously, you've got in, in Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham taking the buses into public control. And on the other side of the north, I see that just this week, uh, the mayor of Tees Valley has unveiled details of another development corporation, at this time in Middlesbrough, uh, having already unveiled one in Hartlepool a few weeks ago. So there's no shortage of ideas in the north of England. And I'm kind of interested in things that you've sort of encountered or seen, which you think are maybe going going well in the north, which perhaps, you know, could be an example for others as uh, for how to you know progress in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, given the right levers, local leadership could do so much and can do so much. Um, as uh, great examples that you've just cited just then, I was in a conversation last week um, with Liverpool City Region and North of Tyne Combined Authority about what they're doing, for instance, on alternative business structures and, and making it easier to start social enterprises, socially traded businesses, you know, that really rewire what what business and what the economy is for and make sure that they have social purpose and are doing good in their local area. So Kindred, Liverpool City Region is a really good example of that, helping businesses kind of rewire how, they, how they're run so that they both um, help their local communities and immediately benefit the, the workers who, who, who can be involved in the development of those. I think also in terms of devolution, we've got to mention um, the Greater Manchester Health and Social Care integration. I think that's, you know, uh, the, the first of its kind. And we're yet to see, I think, the full, the full effects of it. But I think, you know, one of the fundamental challenges we all know, as, as I mentioned earlier, healthy life expectancy and the integration of health and social care in a place and that's a really exciting example of how local leadership and devolution can can test and and I don't want to say experiment, but can can build new models locally. Those can be evaluated and if done well, can be copied elsewhere, you know, and they've chosen to focus on young people's mental health, on, you know, helping people um survive strokes you know they've done some really specific and targeted interventions on the back of being able to integrate both health and social care so I think there's masses of stuff being done um, and it's about how we can replicate that and encourage local leaders to be bold um, and and use the powers they've got as well as as always calling for more power and resources to support that. IPPR North is, is 18 years old. I, I didn't realise that. And so I guess it is worth wondering, in 18 years' time, are we, are we still going to be having these same conversations about, uh, you know, the North has been held back for too long and not enough being done to allow local leaders to, you know, to imp- empower them? Are, are you optimistic that things are actually going in the right direction? Or, or in 18 years' time, are we still going to be having these, the, these conversations again? Well, I hope not, Rob. I hope not. Um, But I am optimistic, actually, because I think um, for two reasons. Firstly, the the challenge of regional inequality is now firmly planted in the public's mind. Um, I think it's been a a slow build. Of course, the levelling up agenda did encapsulate a lot of that um, sense of unfairness and and in the system and in the way our country is wired you know you can't take that away now that's out there and people are looking for change so whether it's this leader the next leader it will have to happen um and secondly i do think local leadership gives us real cause for cheer um again you know especially through the pandemic we saw the real the real value of having vocal um local leadership local representation 
So even if we were looking at the the question of local leadership from a purely political point of view, I do think now some in the current government are looking at the likes of Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham and saying, hey, actually, when the moment comes where actually there is a change of government and the current government is no longer in power, they want their own Andy Burnhams to be able to hold the next government to account or the, the, the government after that. So I think both sides of the political spectrum are are seeing the huge value politically as well as the actual changes that local leadership, local mayors can make. So I think that's two real causes for optimism as far as I'm concerned. Zoe Billingham, thank you very much. A pleasure. There are no shortage of ideas for how we level up the country and boost the prospects of neglected parts of the north of England, but how many of them actually involve the communities they're supposed to be helping? According to the Young Foundation Research Institute, which specialises in community research and social innovation, the majority of major government funds and economic interventions over the last two decades have not involved communities in a meaningful or sustainable way. And 71% of UK adults feel they lack control over important decisions in their neighbourhoods. Now, a group called We're Right Here has launched proposals for what it calls a Community Power Act, calling for increased local control over spaces, services and spending, power sharing arrangements between communities and public bodies and an independent community power commissioner. So what would that mean on the ground? There are some great examples of local leaders who have helped make a difference in their communities. And one of them is Inayat Omaji, who dedicated 10 years and 5,000 hours spearheading the renovation of his local church in Bolton. Today, All Souls Bolton has gone from an abandoned and vandalised space to a beautiful hub for community life. So let's find out how he did it. Inayat, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Good to have you on. So... Can you just give us a sense of what prompted you to take on this project? Was there a sudden moment of realisation or was it something that had been sort of nagging away at you for a while that you wanted to you wanted to tackle this issue? So um, in in relation to the project on the ground, um, the Old Souls Bolton project, um, a bit of a bit of background on it. And but um, if you go to the We're Right Here um, website, you can you know, you can hear my full story on there, but a bit of background. I live in Bolton and basically born and bred in a in a in, a, in an area called Crompton um, in Bolton, and um, I see myself as a connector for for individuals and communities who want to make a difference, uh, whether it's grassroots football or cricket team looking for support or helping service providers. Um, and at a very early stage, um, actually, since I was at college, um, I was volunteering in my community to make a difference. So um, I volunteered with the local authorities, sport inclusion services, where you know, there was lots and lots of money in 1992. I'm sure I'm your age now, but in 1992, um, as part of the City, City Challenge Project program, um, you know, there was a lot of money pumped into the area. Um, and from that day, I was volunteering and there was a burning desire from me and the local community for a local venue uh, in my neighbourhood that allowed to be used by all communities and acted as a central hub for people to meet and opportunities to be explored and delivered. Um, I was young in my volunteering role and through my passion for community development, I continued to work with the communities and and actually landed myself um, 
in a paid employment, working initially with the leisure centres in Bolton and thereafter having the opportunity to work with the local authority and engaging with young people and the communities within neighbourhoods in terms of tackling antisocial behaviour. Um, it is that point where I was working with the local authority and um, giving a lot of time in my voluntary capacity to the local community that I came across um, an opportunity um, to more or less continue my ambition of a community hub. Um, um, basically, what had happened was that as part of my role tackling antisocial behaviour, a lot of antisocial behaviour was actually happening um, at the back of this church, this humongous church that sits in um, uh, a, a very heart of a, a predominantly South Asian community. And to tackle some of the issues on antisocial behaviour, um, was also to tackle some of the graffitis and fires that were happening. With that in mind, um, I contact, contacted the Church's uh, Conservation Trust um, to more or less support to uh, clean up the area in terms of the church and, and the Church's Conservation Trust, which is a national charity which um, has hundreds of churches which are uh, listed buildings um, in the country uh, under their umbrella. And I contacted them and said, listen, we need to clean this building up um, because if you don't, it's going to get burnt down and it's going to go to ruin and it's a beautiful building. And then that was the point when they opened the church doors and said, you know, um, you know, this is what it looks like. And when I went in, it was like, wow, what a beautiful building. Why are we not doing anything with it? Um, so with this dilemma around um, uh, the local authority at that time were closing leisure centres down, they were opening children's centres and then closing them down because there were lack of funding, um, closing libraries in the communities down. And I've still got this in my head in the communities that we need a hub of a place for communities to meet. And that, you know, I'm still working in the local authority uh, and I'm trying to push the agenda to say, you know, we need a hub for this community, this neighbourhood that the young people, the elderly and everybody can come together. And I was more or less in a, in a nice way from my bosses at that time in the local authority saying, and I, great idea, but we haven't got the money. We can't do anything. You know, you need to take this up on, on, in, in, on your own. Um, and that's when the journey started in 2007, when I started talking to the Church's Conservation Trust um, to bring a redundant church, All Souls Bolton, back in the, the use for the local community in Bolton. And as you mentioned, fast forward 14 years, uh, the church is thriving uh, as a business and community venue, serving a diverse community and delivering conferences, events, martial arts sessions, women and children activities, and, and so much more. And how much of a difference has it made to the community having this fantastic facility there and like the problems that you were trying to tackle in the first place? Has it gone some way towards helping to, to, to tackle those? Absolutely. I think... Um, at the back of the church with the fires and the graffiti was happening. It's a nice, now a nice, clean area where there's plants potted and there's individuals coming and doing a bit of gardening and clicking it being tidy. Um, the place is being used, so there's footfall coming in. Um, so obviously it doesn't attract the antisocial behaviour anymore. In terms of the activities and the facilities it provides, 
it's providing business units to businesses, um, so employment. It's providing chair-based exercises for um, some of our elderly in the community who'd never come out of the house on the doorstep and they're coming in there now doing chair-based exercises. It's having uh, opportunities for schools to come and visit. So it's doing a plethora of things that generally wouldn't have happened if this building wasn't converted into a community hub. Once you decided to do this uh, and you got in touch with the, the local group, I mean, how much support was there for you? Was it Did it have to be a kind of one-man effort on your part or were you able to get you know, the local council, other other local groups, the local community on, on your side? So, yeah, um, it, it was a difficult one. Um, it was initially a concept that I uh, brought, brought forward in terms of uh, there's a building here. Can we do something with it? The community has always had always been asking for a hub that they can get to, you know, in their locality, on their doorstep as such, that they could, um, you know, come together and do all sorts of, of things together. What I did was bring other like-minded people together um, with the Churches Conservation Trust who own the building. In terms of the local authority, I more or less got a bit of a, a dig on the shoulder and said, listen, you know, great idea. We don't have the money, you know, um, you might need to do this on your own type of thing. So I I just kept battling uh, with the national organisation, the Churches Conservation Trust, brought forward the ideas. Their trustees saw some vision. Um, I kept knocking on the local authorities' door, the community development door, some of the senior officers and say, you know, can you support us politically? Again, it didn't sit right with them um, because they weren't involved as such and and. And, and one other thing was that they were shutting other centres down um, in other areas, parts of Bolton. So it was like, you know, we see, you know, in a nice way, um, you know, some of the words that were coming out of politicians and other people in a nice way, they're saying, this, is, this looks like a white elephant. Um, and 14 years down the line, you know, it still survives. It, it, it does a lot, lots of opportunities there. Um, so those were kind of the messages and I didn't get, really the support that this community needed from our statutory services um but i persevered uh, a lot of individuals who were rallying around uh, and we created a community group uh, we just uh, passionately kept knocking on the doors and working and creating a business plan and with the national organization as the church's conservation trust we applied for the initial funding um and then we kept chipping away um and we managed to secure uh, hlf funding to um you know uh, redo the building and provide uh, all the facilities that required in this abandoned church internally. Now, I guess that brings us to the wider issue of this campaign, the We're Right Here campaign group. I mean, is it the case that there are lots of people like you in communities who are really passionate about the areas you, you live in and you have lots of ideas about what you, what you want to do? But at the moment, a lot of people like you are not sort of empowered or supported enough to make the difference that you'd that you'd like to make. We're Right Here is a campaign um, and it's driven by, you know, to be honest, a small group of six local leaders and supported by a number of organisations, um, which includes the Young Foundation, New Local. You've got people like Power to Change, the Cares Family, Locality, Local Trust, People's Health Trust, Friends Provident, Joseph uh, Roundtree Foundation, all these large organisations 
is supporting us six locals who's spearheading this campaign. But what we do have is hundreds of other uh, individual local leaders and organisations behind us where we've done our stakeholder events and, 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 and engagement with uh, saying the same here to say, the word says it is that the campaign word we're right here we are right here um we can do uh, more uh, in our local neighborhoods um if you engage with us and that's the message that we're trying to get out and that has come together over the last 12 months in terms of this campaign um pulling um you know um our stories together and the wider stories uh, to create this campaign obviously you're among those as you say backing calls for a so-called community power act i mean what difference would that make to areas like yours the key thing is what do we want you know what is what is it all about so what we want is greater trust in communities um giving more power to people who needs who know the needs of their local area um and their neighborhoods best um, the, the, the country obviously is facing huge problems, um, such as inequality, uh, local decline and widespread mistrust. Um, people in local communities um, are on a day to day basis answering these problems. Um, they're delivering. Uh, local people have the answers. So we're right here um, doing the right, doing the hard work. But it shouldn't be so hard. We shouldn't be uh, going against the grain. We shouldn't be um, pushing doors at every little hurdle. And that's why we're calling for a Community Power Act, which would fundamentally change uh, where power lies in this country. So local people can really shape um, the areas where they live in because they know their area. They, they have the finger on the pulse of their area. What we're looking to achieve um, with the government and with this act is we're calling on the government to bring a new community power act that delivers um, three new community rights on spaces, services, spending, the right to buy, right to shape public services, right to control investment. Um, a community covenant, what does that mean? Um, it's about bringing local people, community organisations um, and local authorities together to share power and make decisions. And the third part of this is a community power commissioner. Um, we're you know, looking to ensure action is taken across government to uphold and unlock community power. Um, so, you know, the full act, um, people can read it on, you know, uh, visit right um, hyphen here dot org um, where we're asking people to support our campaign by signing our letter to Michael Gove. Um, so um, this is, you know, the the act in short, but we've got the whole act on our website. Um, again, it's um, uh, right hyphen here dot org um, where you can support our campaign, you know, read the act, um, sign the letter to Michael Gove. Um, put yourself down if you want to be part of um, this um, uh, campaign. Um, and we do have a launch coming in Parliament um, in the next uh, couple of months. Um, so that will really up the ante and get our politicians to hear more. And that's what we need to do is get our politicians to really sign up to this and say that give more power to the people in our neighbourhoods. Let's see how much political support you can get. Inayat Amaji, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thank you. Thanks, Sean.
Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. 